Good afternoon and welcome. Welcome to public meeting on this glorious day that God's provided. Welcome to this group. My name is Phil Ng and I'm the current president of the EU. And I'd like to extend a particularly warm welcome to you if you're here for the first time, um, or for the 500th time actually. Um, but especially if you're here for, if you're new or visiting here, I'd encourage you to fill out a comment card. Uh, we'd love to hear feedback. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are um, on the talk and other things about this meeting. Um, so if you'd like to fill out one of these sometime in the course of the meeting and drop it in the everything box on your way out, that would be great. We're going to hear a brief announcement now from Marty. Okay, uh, everyone will be aware, or you should be aware, that at the end of the year, we're sending a group of students to a short-term trip to China. And we're trying to raise money for this. And so, this afternoon, after public meeting, we're having a barbecue straight away. It costs $3. And uh, we're also going to be doing some stunts over the public meeting for today and tomorrow. Now, uh, Phil, would you like to come up here for a second? Is, is this a good look? Well, I'm, I'm willing. You have to, uh, you have to pay the MAT hundred dollars to everyone for me to do this. It might not be a razor. I have a wedding to MC in a couple of weeks, and I have to consider their needs ahead of my own. Being a Christian and all. Uh, but a hundred dollars over this, and Graham Chisel will do it tomorrow for another hundred. It's for a good cause, so come and, and support us by doing that. I'm not going to do it for any less. Uh, and it's a big deal because I've never done this before, and I might have a really rude head. Who knows? <laughs> and also, uh, we're looking for two teams to scull uh, three liters of custard. And. You have to pay $20 per team to enter this and there'll be a prize for uh, the team that wins. So if thinking about doing it, it's for a good cause, sending EUs to China at the end of the year. Thank you very much. Can I just say that I think $100 is nothing. I've heard of people go for 5000 so I think Marty's probably selling himself a bit short here. But frankly, that's a good thing to do. Uh, the other thing that's on after lunch and stunts is a prayer meeting um, for the US tragedy. Uh, it's going to be held straight afterwards in the Victoria Park lawn. Um, uh, most of us, if not all, have been affected by it in some way. Uh, and so that would be um, a great thing to come to um, straight after that, um, straight after the luncheon starts happening. Uh, we're now just going to, just before Dave comes to speak to us, we're going to meet our new female vice president, Jane Fu. Come on down. <laughs> We're going to keep this brief, so we're going to do 30 seconds of rapid-fire questioning, including possibly questioning from the audience if you prefer. Unrehearsed. And it's totally unrehearsed, so bear with us. So Jane, who are you? What do you do? Uh, Jane, uh, third year Echoes. Uh, which church do you go to? Penn Hills Baptist. First impressions of EU? Big. First impressions of Mike Kwan? Scary. Who are you? Favourite colour? Favourite item of clothing? Uh, the skirt that we made, my cousin and I made from old jeans. We cut the legs and made it into a skirt. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, Favourite scar story? <laughs> <laughs> For those who are JC, I won't say the same. But there's one on my lip 
I had stitches because when I was small, there was these huge swings and they were metal and I was just pushing them. And because it was really sharp at the end, it caught my lip and I went flying with it. So yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Thanks, Jane. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, give her a round of applause. Uh, Jane, being a female vice president, is another person that you can come to as a point of contact. If you have any questions or comments, um, Jane is the person you can come and see. Uh, but right now, if you'd like to open your Bibles out to 1 Corinthians 10, um, Dave Starling will come and give us a talk from it. Uh, pray with me. Let's pray. Now, Father, we depend on you for everything, and uh, we uh, we know how much we rely on on you to to guide and to encourage and to teach us uh, as we travel through this world uh, toward the next. Uh, please keep our hearts set on that hope. Uh, please encourage us. Uh, to follow closely in the steps of Jesus. Uh, please keep us from distractions and from deceits. Uh, and please speak to us in this part of your words today, we pray. Amen. I want to begin by saying thank you at the uh, outset of the third of these three weeks for the invitation to speak here at EU over the last uh, three weeks. It's always, um, always a privilege to teach the Word of God to others. Um, but for me, it's kind of been especially... Uh, privilege to be back here at Sydney Uni at EU, uh, where I came as a new Christian uh, a number of years ago, and uh, where I received a lot of encouragement and teaching and blessing through my time here. Uh, so it's just a delight to have been back here. Uh, it also struck me over the last three weeks, as I've been giving these talks uh, here in this context at Sydney Uni, uh, how much the issues raised by these chapters in 1 Corinthians were my issues uh, when I first came to uni. Uh, I came from a fairly legalistic background, I guess, looking back, uh, and emerging out of that into the, uh, the hedonism and the pluralism of the university environment really uh, brought up to the surface for me a lot of the issues that uh, Paul writes about here in 1 Corinthians. I hope that for you, you've been able to make some of the connections between, between your issues and the issues that Paul writes about here uh, in these chapters that we've been looking at. Uh, and if you're not yet a Christian too, uh, I hope, as I said uh, two weeks ago, I hope that on the one hand these talks haven't dispelled some of the strangeness of your Christian friends. Uh, I hope they suddenly haven't started to appear normal because they're not normal. Uh, but I, I hope at the same time that these talks, reading through uh, these chapters of 1 Corinthians, have helped you to see something of the internal logic that connects some of their strange behaviours and strange abstinences from the heart of what they believe about Jesus. So I hope these talks... Uh, have made connections between uh, your life and your issues uh, and the circumstances that you face. We've been talking over the last few weeks about what it means uh, to live in the world as the people of God. How to be involved in the world that we live in and not just retreat into a kind of Christian ghetto, but at the same time how to live in that world as God's chosen people, as holy people, as people who stand out as being different. The way that we learn about that issue in these chapters, chapter 8 and 9 and 10 
of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is through a kind of case study. Now, we've seen and traced through Paul's response to what the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth back in the first century, to what those Christians had to say about issues to do with meals in the idol temples and meat that had been sacrificed to idols and eating meals with pagan neighbours. And as we listen in to how Paul deals with this issue in his conversation with the Corinthians, what we come away with is not a set of rules to apply legalistically in every situation, but instead a way of thinking that models for us how we should think through the issues that we face in our own context. And that way of thinking is a way of thinking that brings together both a freedom and a passion that both derive from the gospel of the Lord Jesus. A freedom and a passion that both come from the message of the gospel. On the one hand, these chapters are a strong endorsement of Christian freedom against the legalism and the superstition of religion, against the kind of mindset that thinks that keeping a list of man-made rules is the way to secure God's favour and acceptance for you. But at the same time, these chapters insist that that freedom is not just something that allows us to live in apathy and in self-indulgence, but instead it's a freedom that is framed by the passions that drive us when we know and live for Jesus Christ. Freedom and passion. There are three chapters in this section of the letter, uh, and each of them deals uh, with this issue. And each of them kind of builds on the chapter before, and each of them revolves around one particular one of those three passions that Paul is writing us about. Paul, three passions that come to us from knowing the gospel. Uh, and the first of those, uh, as we saw two weeks ago, is love for one another. Paul starts this section in chapter 8 from the vantage point of thinking these issues through as they affect and as they touch our fellow Christians. And as he responds to the position of the Corinthians, uh, you might remember if you were here two weeks ago, uh, he draws a contrast between two different ways of approaching an issue like this one. On the one hand, he says, you can approach it like the Corinthians as an issue of knowledge and freedom and nothing more. Uh, we know that an idol is nothing. We know that food and drink don't have magical spiritual qualities. Food and drink do not bring us close to God. We know that an idol temple is just another building. There's nothing sacred about the space inside there. We know, uh, and so on, we know all this knowledge that gives us a freedom not to be bound by the superstition and the legalism and the rituals of religion. And the Corinthians say, it's a question about knowledge and freedom and nothing more. With that knowledge, I'm free to do as I please. Or you can approach it, as Paul does, as someone who uses that knowledge and freedom in the service of love. So Paul says, verse 1, knowledge, that kind of knowledge, puffs up. But love is interested in building up, building up the other person. And if we're guided by love, then we cannot, we find that we cannot make decisions about all those little kind of lifestyle questions that the Corinthians were, were grappling with. We cannot decide how we live in relation to these issues without asking, what effect are my actions going to have on the lives of my fellow Christians? And if something that I might otherwise do, something that is entirely permissible, something that I might otherwise do is going to damage them in some way and hinder 
their obedience to Christ and put at threat their salvation, then surely my freedom is less important than their salvation. That's the first principle that Paul teaches in these chapters. Love for each other. But that isn't the end of the story. Because chapter 9 widens the vision. And it reminds us that that first passion of love for each other must go hand in hand with a wider concern, a second passion, which is a longing to see lost people saved. And so Paul says in chapter 9, verse 22, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. And so we spoke last week about, about how a passage like this challenges us to a lifestyle of flexibility and of self-denial. The gospel gives us the very flexibility and freedom that enables us to be a slave to all. The very freedom that allows us to be a Jew to Jew and a Gentile to Gentiles for the sake of their salvation. A slave, Paul says, to all. And the gospel gives us the motivation and the compulsion, the obligation, to use the freedom that we have in self-denial, laying it down for the good of others, to be purposeful and live our lives uh, not in in self-indulgence, not in apathy, but wholeheartedly pouring ourselves out for the sake of the gospel and the salvation of others. Love for each other, a longing to see lost people saved. And thirdly, as we move into, into chapter 10 this week, a loyalty to Jesus Christ that leaves no room for other gods. So Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 10 to remind them in their involvement in the pagan world around them not to fall in love with its gods. It's a crucial reminder and it comes out of Paul's recognition that the world that we live in is not a morally or a spiritually neutral world. Culture is not a morally neutral issue or a spiritually neutral issue. It isn't just that there's a whole lot of individuals out there who need to know Jesus and who need to be saved, although that is true. It's also true that there is a culture and a climate and a social order and a way of viewing the world that is actually a corporate expression of our society and our human race's rejection of God. And behind all of that, there is the one who the Bible describes as the prince of this world, and that is the devil himself. So from a religious point of view, you could say that our culture, as secular as it is, that our culture is an idolatrous culture. And from a spiritual point of view, that idol worship is not only foolish, but demonic. That as we bow down to things that are not God, that it is exactly the strategy and the work of demons to entice us into doing that, into living our lives in bondage to things that are not God. And if that is the case, if the world that we're called to involve ourselves in and to care for and to pray for and to live in and to be part of, if that world is not a spiritually neutral domain, but is actually the playground of demons, if that is the case, if the whole structure of our society and its rituals and its hierarchies and its orders and its value systems are actually part of an expression of its hostility to God, if that is true, then we will need to be determined as we involve ourselves in that world that we will not involve ourselves with its worship. That as we involve ourselves in that world, 
we will not become part of its worship. And the way that Paul illustrates that point and the way that he drives it home is with a series of stories from the history of Israel. Chapter 10, verse 1, Paul writes, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the facts that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. What's the point that Paul's making? It's this strange kind of typological, allegorical language. It's a point about the experience of the people of Israel. They all were part of the community that experienced the events of the Exodus when God, with a strong hand and a mighty arm, rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and parted the Red Sea and led them through out of slavery into freedom. They were all part of the community that experienced salvation. In that sense, they were all corporately baptised, Paul says, in the passing through the Red Sea. And they were all part of the community that God led through the desert and ate the manna and drank from the rock. They were as much a part of the visible people of God as you are and I am. And yet the bodies of most of them were scattered over the desert, their bones bleached by the desert sun. Why was that? Well, Paul reminds us of a few of the reasons in verses 6 to 10. The overarching reason was the state of their hearts. Their hearts were divided. Outwardly, outwardly they were part of the people of God. They wore the badges. They had the experiences. They were baptised people. And yet inwardly, inwardly in their hearts, they were not any different from the people of the nations around them. Verse 7, they were, Paul says, idolaters. Uh, the references to the event when Moses went up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and when he came down, what he found was that the people of Israel were doing a little bit of an idol feast of their own, uh, making up a golden calf. Uh, the people, Paul says, sat down to eat and drink and got up to engage in revelry. And what happened to them? Well, Paul doesn't explicitly tell us here, but in Exodus 32, uh, it tells us that they died in their thousands. Verse 8 is a reminder of another occasion. It's the one recorded in the book of Numbers 25, when a number of the Israelite men became involved in sexual relationships with Moabite women. The narrator in Numbers 25 records that the women invited them to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor, that's the god of the pagans, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Once again, it's a lot like the situation in Corinth, isn't it? An invitation to an idol feast, to a pagan meal, a mixture of immoral sexual entanglements, eating and drinking at the table of foreign gods. And they're not only eating and drinking, but bowing down to them. And verses 9 and 10 refer to similar episodes, when the Israelites tested God, when they dared him to judge them. When they grumbled against the leaders, and again and again, just like the Corinthians really. And as well as retelling the stories, Paul, Paul sheets home the point of the stories with a word of warning and a word of encouragement. First verses 11 to 12, the word of warning. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. 
So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. There's a kind of complacency, I think, that Paul picks up in the attitude of the Corinthians. They say to each other, we are baptised Christians. We eat at the Lord's table. We're members of the people of God. We're mature adult Christians here. And Paul says, don't assume that those things, your baptism, your eating at the Lord's table and so on, don't assume that those things will work like a kind of magic for you if your heart is not committed to God. If you think you're standing, watch out lest you fall. Instead, he says to them, verse 14, flee, flee from idolatry. And with the warning, there's also an encouragement. He says, verse 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to humanity. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The story of Israel in the Old Testament is a story of human unfaithfulness and the incredible faithfulness and mercy of God. Of the fact that God is unfailingly there to provide a way of salvation and forgiveness and a way out of sin and judgment for those who cry to him in repentance. The problem, of course, for, uh, for most of the Israelites, and perhaps for the Corinthians too, the problem is that they were looking not so much for a way out of temptation uh, as a way into it. And when we travel that road, when the thing that we're looking for is not so much a way to resist temptation, but a way to condone the things that we want to do and to justify ourselves in that, when the thing that we're looking for is not a way out, but an excuse for going in, then this promise is not really addressed to us at all. But when we set our heart on pleasing God, when we long to be faithful, we long to be, live as people who love Him, even if we don't think we have the strength to, then He promises us, He promises us that the testing will not be forever, that there will be an end, there will be a way out, and that He will enable us while it lasts to bear up under the test. Well, that's the first part of the passage in verses 1 to 14 as Paul applies to us and to the Corinthians these stories of the Old Testament about the nation of Israel. The second part of the passage in verses 15 to 22 takes that same point and drives it a little further. There are some actions and some rituals and some activities, Paul says, that as Christians we simply, we simply can't take part in. You can't go to an idol feast, Paul is saying, and sit down at a table and eat the food and drink the drink and come out afterwards saying, uh, I didn't mean anything. I had my fingers crossed behind my back. Um, you know, I, I didn't inhale. I, I, didn't, I didn't swallow. My heart wasn't in it. You, you can't do that. You can't do that any more than you can go and sleep with a prostitute and say, no, 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 it didn't mean anything. My heart wasn't in it. I was thinking of my wife all the time. You see, there are certain actions, no matter what we say that we mean by them, there are certain actions that communicate a meaning and a message just by the virtue of the action itself. If you sit at the Lord's table and you eat the bread and you drink the wine, what you are saying is that you are a believer and a participant in Jesus Christ, that you share in Christ. Now that may or may not be true, but it is what you are communicating as you eat and you drink at that table. And in the same way, Paul says, if you go to the idol feast and if you sit down at the table of the God, you are saying to those around you that you are one of the worshippers, that you're part of this, that you're a participant. And Paul says that that is not the kind of statement that a Christian can make. Verse 21, you, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You, you cannot have a part 
in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. The Lord's table that we eat at is an expression of a relationship that is an exclusive relationship and a loyalty that, that can't be divided. It's a, a relationship with Jesus that leaves no room for other gods. And when we understand that in those terms, it becomes not an excuse for us to be complacent in the temptations that we face to serve other gods, but instead something that spurs us on to be undivided in our devotion to him. And so having hammered home uh, his point about the, the third of those three passions, Paul comes back to talking about the freedom that is framed by them, the freedom of a Christian. Uh, he said quite emphatically in these verses that if you are Christian, then you, you do not go to the idol feast. But he goes on immediately to say that there are a host of other issues where it's not as black and white as that. There are a host of other issues that are in themselves, not, not, that are in themselves morally and, and spiritually indifferent things. A host of things where the, Christian, where, where the Corinthian slogan applies, everything is permissible. Verse 23, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek their own good but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience' sake. The Gospel teaches us that Jesus Christ is Lord over the whole world. His resurrection declares him as the one through whom all things were made and to whom everything belongs and for whom everything exists. It all belongs to him. And so on uh, issues like food and drink and so on, Paul quotes from the Psalms, the earth is the Lord's. In Paul's mind that means it's the Lord Jesus's and the fullness of it, everything in it. In Christ, the old division too between Jew and Gentile, that old dividing wall has been torn apart. It's irrelevant now. It's taken away. And along with it, the whole system of, of laws about clean and unclean food is, is gone. Not only that, the gospel makes it clear that the idols of this world, uh, the idols that this meat at the marketplace might have been offered to, those idols are nothing. And their power is only in the power of the deceptions that are propagated by the demons that enslave people to them. But if you're not captive to those lies, uh, if in Christ you've come to know the truth, then when you know the truth, it sets you free. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, when you go down to the marketplace uh, and you're not sure about whether the food is kosher uh, and you don't know for certain whether it might have been offered up to an idol, uh, in those kind of uncertainties, don't let it trouble you. Uh, it doesn't need to be a question of conscience for you. Uh, and you, can't, you can't bite into a piece of meat and contract idolatry from it as if there were demons living in the meat. Uh, just do your shopping down at the marketplace without getting all anxious about whether the, the food you're buying might be somehow spiritually polluted. And the same when you go and have dinner with your neighbours. Uh, just, just eat what they put in front of you. Um, say thank you and enjoy. Jesus ate and drank with Gentiles and tax collectors and sinners. I'm sure the meat wasn't all kosher and the food wasn't all um, idol-proof. Uh, he also made it abundantly clear that it's not food and drink that make a person clean before God. Uh, Mark chapter 7, Jesus made the point um, emphatically. So if your neighbours invite you over, and Paul says then if you'd like to go, if, if you're not, you're free that night and you enjoy the company, um, then by all means, accept the invitation and enjoy the meal. On the other hand, verse 28, if you're there at dinner and someone says to you, uh, this has been offered in sacrifice, 
um, then be prepared to give it a miss. Um, it isn't entirely clear whether the person who says that is a Christian with a tender conscience who will be really troubled and tempted and damaged by the way you eat it, um, or perhaps a non-Christian who's trying to sort of push you and see whether you know you can kind of get you to bend your rules under a little pressure. Um, or perhaps a friendly pagan neighbour who's, who's saying, you know, stay away from the beef satay. I, I got it cheap at the temple this morning. Um, like we might, you know, tip off a, a Muslim or a Jewish friend that, you know, there's a bit of bacon in the pasta sauce or something. Um, but whatever the reason, that it might be a temptation or a bad example or an insult to the person who tells you, Paul says, be prepared to do without it if that's the best thing for the other person. It doesn't really matter whether you eat it or you don't. So be prepared to give it a miss if that's what's best for them. What Paul is modelling is an attitude of indifference to the things that are unimportant to God. In things where it's quite clear from God's word and from the teaching and the example of Jesus and the implications of the gospel, those things that are quite clearly unimportant, Paul says, be indifferent. If, if you can take them or leave them, if we're not enslaved to our appetites so that we feel that we will only be satisfied if we eat it, and if we're not trapped in a kind of legalism that makes us think that we will only be acceptable to God if we stay away from it. If we're, if we're free to take it or leave it, then we will have the greatest freedom to make our decisions in a way that serves God and serves others. The indifferent things that Paul's talking about here are things that are unimportant in our own lives. And they're also things that are unimportant in the lives of our fellow Christians. That's why in verses 29 to 30, um, notice how Paul makes a kind of quick clarification um, to make sure that we don't misunderstand the reasons why a person might abstain in a situation like that. What he wants to rule out here, I think, is an attitude of judgmentalism. An attitude that makes these things not just a rod for our own backs, but also a criterion and a measuring stick for judging others. Uh, in areas like this, where our consciences are clearly not bound by God's word, where God leaves us free to make our own decisions about how to live out the details, in areas like this, we must not allow one person's freedom to be judged by another person's conscience. That's how Paul urges us to be, in our attitudes towards the unimportant things of life, the indifferent things. Things like styles of music, styles of dress, food and drink, and so on. Paul urges us to be free from anxiety and guilt and paranoia in our own lives and our own decisions, and free from judgmentalism in our attitudes toward the decisions of others. But we can't afford to leave it there, uh, as if that was all there was to be said. Because the scriptures don't just teach us about how to be indifferent about the unimportant things and free about those things where God's, God's word leaves our conscience free. They also teach us about how to be passionate about the things that really do matter. And that's where the final verses of this chapter take us, as Paul winds up the whole section we've been travelling through these last three weeks. Uh, as Paul takes the argument to its conclusion... And as Paul brings us back to those same three passions that we spoke about at the start of this talk, Paul writes, uh, concluding verse 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In the first place, Paul urges us, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, in all things, to do it for the glory of God. 
That's the very purpose that the Bible teaches us that we were created for. And so Paul is saying uh, that should touch on every part of our lives, our eating, our drinking, everything we do. That doesn't mean just carrying around in our pockets uh, a list of the, the uh, 613 things that we must and must not do um, legalistically in case they dishonour God. It means carrying around in our hearts uh, an eagerness, uh, a passionate desire to bring honour to God, to give pleasure to God's heart, uh, to bring glory to God's name. It means letting our own desire for our own glory and reputation and, and advancement just be swallowed up by our desire for God's glory and God's reputation and the advancement of God's kingdom. It means living with all our heart for God and for God's glory. I have a friend called Paul uh, who I meet up with for Bible reading and prayer. Uh, Paul's a recovering alcoholic. Uh, he's also on a suspended sentence for uh, alcohol-related um, assaults and criminal damage charges. Um, I went away for a couple of weeks recently, about a month ago, and I, I came back from my holidays to find out that Paul... Um, who knew desperately that, that staying clean um, from the alcohol was, was just crucial towards um, a whole lot of things in his life, that Paul had relapsed uh, and he was bitterly disappointed. Uh, I went around to visit him and um, the story really is not a story about Paul but about, about his mate Mick who I met when I was there. I was in Paul's room uh, in the boarding house where he lived uh, and there was Mick, his, uh, his mate, his drinking buddy, his old drinking buddy. Uh, and I sat down talking with him and Mick found out that I was a, a pastor and so he started talking about God and so on. And it turned out that Mick um, was, uh, was someone who'd come from a, quite a Christian background himself, uh, from a Church of Christ background over in New Zealand. And we were talking away, and Mick was, was saying to me, you know, I used to have a problem with things like alcohol and cigarettes and so on. But then I met this Catholic priest who told me um, a motto, a slogan. He said to me, just love God and do what you like. Love God and do what you like. Um, and uh, he was sitting there with um, a bottle of cheap red that he was passing to Paul, um, my friend, the recovering alcoholic. Uh, to have a swig every, every few minutes uh, and sitting there saying to me, you know, love God, do what you like. Uh, and I felt myself having to say to him, look, I love the slogan. Um, it's a fantastic slogan. Uh, I think it comes from, from St. Augustine from memory, uh, actually. Um, but I had to say to him, I think when he said that, he, um, uh, when that, that, that priest guy said it to you, I think you heard the second half of the sentence and not the first. Um, you heard the do what you like bit, but you kind of forgot the love God bit. And I think when, when Augustine, uh, if it was him, said that first bit, the love God bit, I think he meant something similar to what Jesus meant when he talked about loving God. And he meant something about loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And in the next sentence he said it meant loving your neighbour as, as you love yourself. And I think he meant something like Paul meant when Paul said, do everything for the glory of God. Live your life for his glory. Love him with every fibre of your being. And when you love God like that, uh, when you love God with every part of your being, um, the do whatever you like thing kind of sorts itself out, doesn't it? Um, you do whatever you like with a heart that is framed and, and driven by the passion of your love for God and your love and your concern and your desire for God's glory, not your own. And it probably doesn't sit very well with passing a bottle of cheap red to your mate who's trying to recover from a lifetime of alcohol addiction. Live your life with a passionate desire and concern in everything you do for God's glory and love him with all your heart. And let that, not some kind of legalistic code of rules, be the thing that drives you in your interactions with others and the decisions about your lifestyle. That desire for the glory of God goes hand in hand with the desire for the good of others, doesn't it? We've already kind of seen how Jesus links together the, the first command and the second in that respect. 
And Paul emphasizes that twice in this passage. Verse 23, he says, uh, probably quoting from one of the slogans of the Corinthians, everything is permissible, do what you like, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. And then down in verse 32, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. It's always the way in the Bible. The desire for the glory of God goes hand in hand with the desire for the good of others. And when Paul talks in here about the, the good of others, he doesn't just mean their material good, does he? He means their, their spiritual good as well. Uh, it's partly about not doing the things that will make the other person stumble, um, but also the things, I guess, that will spur them on to keep running the good race. There's something contagious about godliness, isn't there? There's something uh, quite different between real godliness and legalism in that respect. Legalism has a stench of death about it. Uh, when someone lives their life for a code of rules that they think makes them better than everyone else around them, and they think is the guarantee of their, their acceptance with God, a code of rules that they are enslaved to and worship, uh, that has the stench of death about it. There's nothing attractive about that. But when someone genuinely, from their heart, with all their heart, longs to please God and live a life of godliness, when someone lives that way, eagerly wanting to please God as his child, and that is such a glorious thing. And it makes, if you have the Spirit of God in your heart, it makes you want to be like them. There's something contagious about godliness. It is for the good of others that we're godly, as well as for the glory of God. And ungodliness is contagious too. When one person in a group is ungracious or cynical or bitter or apathetic or passionless or careless, then that also spreads to the rest of the group very often. If we're the kind of people this passage urges us to be, then we will be eager to have the first kind of influence on others and not the second. To live our lives as we live them for the glory of God, to live them for the good of others so that they might be saved. Uh, not just kind of ticking a box and walking down the front of a, a church, but saved on the last day, having run the race and standing before God as saved people uh, who don't die in the desert but who come into the land. Three passions, the glory of God, the good of others, and thirdly, the salvation of the lost. Really, it's just a subset of, of the first two, isn't it? If we long for God's glory, then we will long for people to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus and to submit to him and to, to know him and to, to call on his name and to, to worship him. That's partly what we're saying when we pray the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? When we say, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if we're seeking the good of others, uh, then this most of all will be what we long for for them. Paul says, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of others, that they may be saved. Now, um, not every Christian is a Billy Graham. You may not be the world's greatest confronter or arguer or debater um, or persuader. You may not have the most um, gifted use of words. Uh, and God has made us with particular gifts. But if, uh, if we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to follow his example, uh, if we're going to have the kind of heart that Paul's writing about here, uh, then we will have that sort of desire deep within us uh, to see people that we know saved, uh, to see people that we don't know in the other side of the world saved, uh, to long for the salvation of the lost. I want to ask us in conclusion, what are we passionate about? What are you passionate about in your life?
it's, it's easy to bandy about words, isn't it? It's easy to say, um, I'm, I'm passionate about the glory of God. And it's nothing more than just a correct kind of evangelical statement of uh, how you, what you're supposed to say. They're Christian cliches, and you learn them very quickly when you hang around Christians for long enough. What's more important is that we examine ourselves to see if there's a reality uh, behind the words. What's more important is that we examine the way we live and the way we feel and the way we think, the way we make decisions, to see if it reflects the kind of pattern that Paul writes about here uh, as he tries to live his life walking in the steps of Jesus. To see whether we live with the same freedom from self-indulgence and the slavery to our appetites and the slavery to legalism that Paul writes about in these chapters and with the same passion that, that longs to see God glorified and our fellow Christians built up and kept in the faith and lost people saved. You might want to make a note to take some time alone this week and think about these things. What was the last time when you were heartbroken about something? And what was it? What was the last time when you, you sat down uh, for several hours and planned something? An essay? A holiday? A party? A career? Uh, or was it a way to reach lost people with the gospel? What is it that gets you really excited? Uh, excited enough to kind of um, move up and down, dance, um, sh shout aloud, um, uh, scream out. What is it that gets you really excited? What is it that makes you cry? When did you last shed tears? And what kind of things make you shed tears? What do you daydream about? What thoughts just kind of keep filtering back into your mind as you daydream without even intending to think about it? You might want to take some time this week and ask yourself a couple of those questions. And as you do that, you might want to pray that God would give to you, maybe that God will give back to you, that God will give to all of us a heart that, that throbs genuinely with those kind of passions that we've spoken about today. A passion for the glory of God, a passion for the good of your fellow believers, a passion for the salvation of the lost. Let's ask God give us that kind of knowledge of ourselves and that sort of change in our hearts that that will require. Let's pray. Now, Father, you tell us that your word is a kind of mirror that we look into and uh, we see ourselves uh, sometimes in ways that we, we wish we hadn't. And... Uh, your word also tells us that we're foolish if we just go away and forget what we've seen. So we pray that you would give us this week the time and the wisdom and the self-understanding to know ourselves and where we are in this respect. Help us to know what the passions of our hearts are and forgive us, Father, for those ways in which we lack the desire and the longing and the love that we see in Jesus. Father, please help us uh, as we examine ourselves too to be uh, confident of your forgiveness, um, to, to know that promise and that encouragement you give us that no temptation comes upon us 
apart from those that are common to all people, and that you promise with the temptation also to provide a way of escape and a way that we can bear up. And you promise us the work of your Spirit in our hearts to give us not only the desire to do what is good, but also the strength to carry it out. So Father, please help us, teach us to know ourselves better and change us and change our hearts. Give us these desires, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thanks, Dave. Uh, it has been quite a, a challenging last few weeks. Um, and I encourage you all also to uh, take the time out in the conversations now uh, and also take time out of your week um, to consider some of those issues that Dave raised. Uh, before we go, I have a couple of quick announcements. First one is um, if you're involved in Stu Ministries, come and see Mike McLean at the front. Um, second one is also the comment cards. We really, really want to hear your feedback. So make sure you fill those in and stick it in the box on the way out. And the last one is about the luncheon studs and afterwards the prayer meeting that will be held down in Victoria Park. So I look forward to seeing you all out there.